Dr. Snodgrass, the great scholar, says, you know, that only the Psalms and maybe the Gospel of John and Romans can compare with Ephesians and, and what they cover and being the, this document that, that, that brings life to the to Christian history and to the, the, the reality of who Christ is, yet those are all far, far longer. And the Ephesians, in, short, in a short six chapters, gives us so much truth of what God has called for his church and, and who we are called to be. And what makes this book so beautiful, one of the things that's so relevant for us to study and heading into the season is that... Uh, even as we open up the background and try and understand what it's about, but I think it was the scholar John Mackey who said that this is the most contemporary book of the Bible, that you could almost take all of Ephesians and just rewrite it today, maybe except for the part about slavery, though that's, we'll, we'll get there and we'll talk about why that's so relevant. But other than that part, it's everything is, is completely contemporary in the sense we could read it today for our culture today and it would almost make the same amount of sense for us today. And so we're going to take a few months now to be able to go through this and look at the directions that Paul has given to the ancient church in the city of Ephesus. And we're calling it Living Living Like Jesus a Post-Christian World because our situation today, while different than the early church, we're facing some of the similar consequences. And if you haven't noticed, our society today is becoming more and more post-Christian. We are walking away and turning away from God in alarming numbers. A recent Pew Research Study article came out just this past week and hit all the major news sources. And it, it said this, and here's actually a, 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 the headline from CBS News saying, Christianity in the U.S. is quickly shrinking and may no longer be the majority religion within just a few decades. Now, what's fascinating in this study is they show all the different scenarios of what's happening with the trends. And it shows that, you know, back just a couple decades ago, Christianity was, identif- was the main identification by over 90% of people in America. Right? Over 90%, just a few decades ago, claimed that Christianity was, uh, was, was their, their, their place of faith. And by 2020, that number had dropped to 64%. Right? So you can show the next slide. And by, I guess it's a little small up there, but by 2020, it was 64%. What they're showing is, depending on whatever projection they give, and all of them are possibilities, but regardless of the, of the, the most kind versus the most realistic, you could say, Within the next couple of decades, Christianity is going to drop to anywhere between 35 to 40% of Americans identifying as Christians within America, unless there is a radical shift to what's going on in current trends, which is not likely outside of some miraculous change. And so you can read that, you can say, well, the sky is falling. America is, is, is losing its faith. And there are many who have done that, and I've seen it posted kind of all over the web and different people that are looking at it. Or we could actually recognize that what is actually the study doesn't show is that this is simply Christians who identify as Christians. Right? This study is showing people who click a box saying that they are Christians. They're cultural Christians. So it's people that maybe they grew up in, in, in the church or people that uh, went to church once on maybe on Christmas or on Easter. People who just identify that they're the ones who are now walking away. But what it doesn't show is the fact that those who actually actively align themselves with Christ, who are actively following Christ and are, and are seeking to live in love more like him, that number actually hasn't been shifting very much. It's simply that cultural Christianity in America is slowly dying out. And here in the Seattle area, we seem to be leading that charge of where it's no longer cool to just claim that you're Christian. And people would actually be part of this group called the nuns. And they're actually, the study shows that within a couple decades, none is going to be the fastest growing in the, the, religion, the, the religion that increases over 50%. Those who claim on that box put none for religious affiliation. And to me, this isn't actually a terrible thing. It's not a bad thing that, we are, that Christ, cultural Christianity is dying out, that people are no longer think it's cool to be it, and the fact that people actually now have to start, start taking a stand for what it means to be a Christian, rather than just conforming to the culture around it. But no matter what way you look at it, we are rapidly becoming more and more a post-Christian culture here in America. And here in the Seattle area, again, it's, it's growing even more. And that's why I feel that right now, as we're heading to the book of Ephesians, it's incredibly relevant. 
As we're moving into this next season of Northview, I believe, that, believe there's no better place in Scripture that to enter into than the book of Ephesians, where we get to see how Paul identifies the role of the church in regards to the world, in a world that is completely anti-God at the time. And as we're renewing our focus here on really reaching the lost of this area, it's so relevant to see what is the message Paul gives to the church in Ephesus of how they are to live and reach out to their own neighbors in this incredible city of Ephesus at the time. Because the reality is the situation of the church of Ephesus was far more challenging than anything most of us will ever experience in our lifetimes. And we're going to talk much more about that background this morning. But if what, if what Paul has said is true for them at that time in the city of Ephesus, it's even more true for us today in our situations. And before we jump into the jumping letter, I want to talk about the background of what was going on at the time. Because in Acts chapter 19, we actually have this incredible uh, six stories, actually, that tell us the story of what was going on in the city of Ephesus. And I want us to look at these because it really opens up what was happening at the time of the Christians. And so as, this, as the chapter 19 opens up, it begins by Paul encountering some Christians on the side of the road as he enters into the city of Ephesus. And now this is happening just over 20 years after Christ died. And as he's there on the, the city of Ephesus, he meets these people who identify as Christians. And he asks them, have you received the Holy Spirit? And the response of these Christians is, Holy Spirit, we've never heard of the Holy Spirit. And he says, all we know about is the baptism of John. So what we find out is that the Christians in the city of Ephesus didn't actually know anything about the Holy Spirit. They weren't even really following Jesus. It was just an idea they had heard. Likely, they had been influenced from the time of Pentecost, where people had been there and come back and told them some stories. And so immediately we learn that the Christians are, there's almost no real Christians that are actually following Jesus and being led by the Holy Spirit. And then next, he tells a story about how, starting in verse 8, he talks about how he spent three months in a synagogue teaching about Jesus. And how the people hate him and they won't listen to him. And so after spending that three months in the synagogue with the Jews, he leaves and he goes to the main lecture hall of the city to speak with those who are not Jews. And verse 11 tells the story of what happens there. He says, God gave Paul the power to perform unusual miracles. When handkerchiefs or aprons that had merely touched his skin were placed on sick people, they were healed of their diseases and evil spirits were expelled. So we see is that Along with teaching the truth of the gospel, God is working miraculously through Paul in miracles. And this is people's encounter of the gospel comes through receiving the truth and also through incredible miraculous encounters with the Holy Spirit and with God. And so that's how it starts. And then the next passage, we have this other crazy story, which explains a lot about the background of Ephesus. And so starting in verse 13, it says, A group of Jews was traveling from town to town, casting out evil spirits. They tried to use the name of the Lord Jesus in their incantation, saying, I command you in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, who was a leading priest, were doing this. But one time when they tried it, the, the evil spirit replied, I know Jesus and I know Paul, but who are you? Then the man with the evil spirit leapt on them, this is seven guys, overpowered them and attacked them with such violence that they fled from the house naked and battered. Now that's intense. These people were, again, using incantations, meaning that it was all about magic and source at that time, as we'll see, and they're treating the Holy Spirit and Jesus like some type of magical power like all the other powers at the time. And when they go to use it, they tried it against the Spirit, and the Spirit, the demon, overpowers seven full-grown men and leaves them bloodied and naked running out of a building. Right? This is the encounter, and crowds witnesses. And look at the response of this. It says in verse 17, the story of what happened spread quickly all through Ephesus. To Jews and Greeks alike, a solemn fear descended on the city, and the name of the Lord Jesus was greatly honored. Many who became believers confessed their sinful practices. So the result of this was that people recognized Jesus was more powerful than the demonic realm. 
And many, many people follow Christ. But not only that, it says a fear fell on the area, a somber fear of people like, whoa, there's something real about Jesus that's different from everything else. Okay, now the next verse tells another crazy story. Chapter 19, verse 19 says, A number of them who had been practicing sorcery and witchcraft brought their incantation books, their magic books, and burned them at a public bonfire. The value of the books was 50,000 drachmas. Now, a drachma is a single day's wage. 50,000 drachmas, that's about 136 annual or 136 years of wages. And so what that means, if you were to translate to modern day in Washington State, it would mean over $10 million worth of magical books, incantations, and things that were demonic were being burned in a public bonfire. I mean, can you imagine? This is not the public. This is the church. Within the church of Ephesus, by modern day standards, over $10 million worth of magical books and incantations were being burned in a public bonfire of just those who are in the church. I mean, could you imagine the size of the fire for $10 million worth of magical books? And these aren't like Harry Potter wannabes, right? That are just like some simple books with fake wands. These are people that were actively, actively involved in magical uh, potions and witchcraft and incantations. You can find all this ancient stuff online of the types of, of curses and, and things they were doing. Everything they were doing is to try and get power over the spiritual world because they lived in great, great fear of the gods in the spiritual world. And these books were filled with names and curses and, and, and spells and things to give them real power that they understood. But when they encountered Christ, all of a sudden they realized that his power was far greater than anything they'd experienced before. And so they burned millions of dollars by modern-day standards, worth of these books, in a massive bonfire. And so what that tells you about Ephesus is this is a deeply, deeply demonic city, that even the Christians have to burn that much stuff. How much was outside the church? He just tells you this was what was normal with every day. The Christians were doing this. And we can see the people were so deep into magic and sorcery and incantations and witchcraft. This was central to their life. But when they encountered Jesus, they saw something far greater. And then the next chapter, we get an even crazier story, where Paul, after preaching in the area for about two years, it tells us the whole region got to hear about Jesus, and many, many had accepted Christ. The impact of the gospel had such an incredible impact on Ephesus that it begins to affect the entire economy. Now, Ephesus was one of the most important cities of the ancient world, and definitely of the Roman Empire, and Asia Meyer was the biggest economic center of the whole area. That's the area of modern-day Turkey in that area. And one of the things that Ephesus was known for more than anything else was for the Temple of Artemis. The Temple of Artemis, or Diana, was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was this massive temple, about one and a half times larger than a football, a football field. But that involves not just the footprint, but just massively tall, huge thing. There's many pictures that you can see online if you want to see what it looks like. But this massive temple that loomed over the city, and it was the centerpiece of, of their life there. And the way that they worshipped Artemis was Artemis was known as the goddess of the hunt. But she was also known as the goddess of, of fertility and also, therefore, of childbirth. And she, they, they worshipped with this really weird idol that I won't put a picture of because it's kind of weird. But it, it, you can look at it online. But she's got animals covering her whole body. And then around her torso, she has like 50 or 60 breasts just completely covering all layered on top of each other because of fertility. And because of childbirth. And this is the, the goddess that they worshipped, was this goddess of fertility and the goddess of the hunt. And to be an Ephesian, they took incredible pride in the worship of Artemis, that Artemis was their god that worked over their city, and people would come from all over the empire to come and worship this fertility goddess. 
And so Luke tells us that so many people in, in Acts chapter 19, that so many people were following Jesus, that actually the impact was starting to affect the economy of Ephesus. Because as people started turning away from the gods and turning to Jesus, they stopped worshiping Artemis. And so the biggest, uh, one of the big instigators of this was a silversmith named Demetrius. And Demetrius was making idols to sell to all the people that were coming, that were around locally and those coming in, and was recognizing his business was being impacted because he lost so much money because not enough people were buying his goods. And so what he did was he gathered together all the other tradesmen who were making money off of Artemis and selling goods, and he got them to form a friends. And he said, don't you realize, not only are we going to lose money, but the way he describes it in Acts chapter 19 is he says that uh, Paul and all the others are robbing Artemis of her divine majesty that they are removing the power and the divine majesty of Artemis. And so a mob forms, and they go searching for Paul, screaming, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, and they can't find Paul. They're in such a frenzy, they just grab a couple of his co-workers who are with them. They take him to the giant amphitheater, which you can still see there today, filled with thousands of seats, and for two hours, it says, they scream at Paul's friends, saying, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, and everyone thinks they're going to die until finally the whole mob gets dispersed eventually through some wisdom. So again, what does all this tell us about from Acts chapter 19 that we can learn about this as we walk into the book of Ephesians? Well, first we learn from looking at all this is that this is a brand new church plant. So all of this happens right around the year around 55 AD, so about 20 or so years after Jesus died. And so Paul now is writing this letter only about five to seven years later. So there are no Christians in the city of Ephesus who are older than seven years old by the time this letter is written. This is a brand new church plant. Right? Most of the Christians would be less than a few years old in their faith. So then they're young. But also, this is a deeply, deeply demonic and sin-filled city that they're living in. Where the spiritual world is as real as the physical world. Where the average Ephesian is running after magic and idolatry and witchcraft and temple prostitution. Not for the sake of lust, but for the sake of controlling their circumstances. If you want to have children, you can't get pregnant, you go to the temple and you have sex with a prostitute that's at the temple in order to get them to move you, the gods, to get them to give you favor of childbirth or for whatever you want in regards to the need. So it's all about manipulating the gods for your good that they live deeply in fear of. And then third, that the Christians and the church, even the leaders, it's very important as we get into this book, recognize that even the leaders are only a few years removed from this lifestyle of demonic witchcraft, sorcery, magic, prostitution, and all the sexual immorality of the area. They're, even the leaders, every single person of the church almost, has been involved in this activity. The entire church is filled with Satan worshipers, basically, that are only recently removed, making sacrifice to all these gods and demons. And so this is what the church is filled with, all just brand new believers. And and part of this, they were worshiping a goddess of fertility, and you can probably imagine what it was like worshiping a goddess of fertility in that time. Actually, better yet, don't imagine it. It's pretty messed up. But the scholar Dr. Kent Hughes, he describes it this way. He says, these verses were addressed to Christians who had come to Christ while living in the notoriously sinful port city of Ephesus. In that wicked metropolis, the dominant religion was the worship of the multi-breasted goddess Diana, and ritual prostitution was a way of life. Moreover, there was a cultural acceptance of sexual perversion as a valid and even exalted way of life. Now, some of that feels like it could have been written today, but this is the situation in the city of Ephesus. And it's just a, a brief overview of it. And now to this church filled with young Christians, 
still wrestling with their past with so many questions of, is God really enough? They spent their whole lives turning to the gods to give them power over life, and now this young church is turning to Christ, and they're wondering if he really is enough for them in that way. We're going to see how Paul answers that. And then on top of all the sin and the witchcraft, there's also a deeply divided city with Jews and Gentiles who hate each other as well. And so all around are people living in sin, they're converts from this funky lifestyle, they're living in fear of the spiritual world, and they're deeply desiring power. That's central to their culture, is desiring power over all the gods and over the things in life to give them power in the world. And again, that's on top of just the normal stuff that the average person struggles with, of how do I love my wife? How do I raise my kids? How do I um, love one another? What is my identity in Christ? What's going to happen to me when I die? I mean, all those regular questions just layered on top of that. So even after becoming Christians... They're still deeply struggling with their past and fully trusting God. And that is the circumstance through which Paul is writing this letter. And one of the most amazing things about this letter, in my opinion, is is not just what's written in it that we're going to spend the next few months going through that, but it's also what it doesn't include. Because imagine if you were in that place of writing to a letter to this young church and young converts were in that situation. If you had planted a church like that, and then a few years later you hear of all the difficulties and struggles of them, I mean, how would you encourage these people, these young Christians who are living in this deeply demonic, deeply sinful city where it seems the whole world is against them, the government's against them, the people are against them, and just a few years later, they're going to be killing them by the thousands. How would you encourage them? I mean, you might first tell them, you know, go rebuke all this demonic activity. Go fight. Go fight, fight, fight against the demons. Go, go, go clear out the houses and rebuke everything that's going on and, and put up a giant fight against those that are there. You might want to say that because they're in this battle. Or maybe you'll say, you know, young Christians living in this demonic of a city, imagine the temptation to go and, and, and go back to that other way. I mean, how are they going to be influencing just a few people in a city of hundreds of thousands? How are they going to influence this world, this corrupt, demonic, sinful world for the gospel? I mean, shouldn't they run to a place of safety? Maybe you'd say, maybe it's best for these young Christians to move away from this demonic stronghold, and maybe it's best for them to get away and, and run to a place that maybe would be safer for them. Maybe a place with less demonic activity or less sinful activity. Maybe they need to get out and move out to the countryside or, or move to, to, to a different state or something like that. Yet that's not Paul's message at all. In fact, he's not going to tell them to fight against the demons. He's not going to tell them to run. But in this letter of Ephesians, he's going to give them, this is how you live in the midst of an anti-God society. As Christians, young Christians, deeply wrestling and struggling with their faith, this is how you do it. The Chinese theologian Watchman Nee, back in 1957, wrote a commentary on this, in which he, I love how he kind of broke it down, the book of Ephesians. Uh, and he describes it for, as, as sit, walk, and stand. So we'll take the first three chapters and say, this is what it means to sit. You sit because the first three chapters are devoted to Paul talking about what does it mean that we are now seated in Christ. We are now in Christ. The first three chapters is going to be about that sit. Sit in the reality that we are now in Christ and who God called you to be, your identity in Christ. Then he's going to go from chapter 4, verse 1, all the way to chapter 6, verse 9, and he calls that walk. Because over and over again, there's this repeated word of walk worthy of the gospel, walk in the light, walk in love, and the the core idea of love one another sacrificially. Love one another, submit to one another. Everything's about how we now walk out our identity. Now that we are seated in Christ, here's how we're going to walk that out. And then finally, in chapter 6, verse 9, to the end of the chapter, he calls it a stand. I mean, now we must stand firm in all the things that God has spoken through the rest of the book. We must now stand firm in that reality. And chapter 6, verse 9 to 10, or, or to the end of the book, is that spiritual warfare passage, as people often talk about it, and the, the, the armor of God. And we'll get there in a few months. But you're to see, it's not like some crazy battle armor that they have on. It really is just a summary of the rest of the book. 
as he's telling them to stand in the truth of what Christ has done. None of that is of their own efforts, but all of it is them standing in the truth of who Christ is and what he has done in their lives. So the first three chapters of Ephesians are primarily teaching about what Christ has done and who they are as a result of that. And the last three chapters would be now, this is how you live as a result of what Christ has done. John Stott wrote a great commentary on this. Um, He's a great theologian, and he calls it God's new society. And I love that phrase for the book of Ephesians. Because it's God is calling out people to live in this new Christian society in the midst of a deeply anti-God society. And Christians are called to this new way to influence the world that they're in. And I recognize that for us living in the Seattle area, sometimes this can be a little scary. Maybe this might touch a nerve in regards to what we're looking at. Because so many people in this area right now, we're watching, especially parents are saying, do I want my kids to be raised in the Seattle area with the school systems or what's going on here or with the government or the politics and all the stuff that's going on, the polarization. Somebody would say, you know, I, I want to get out of here because it's just getting too intense. And there's too much happening. There's too much going on. And I get it. It does seem like kind of the world is falling in and, and this area is, is turning so much against God. Yet, something that's beautiful in the book of Ephesians for us to see is that compared to what the Ephesians were living in, we live in a Christian utopia, even here in Seattle. Ephesians Christians could only dream of living in a city as moral and God-fearing as Seattle. I mean, seriously, compared to what they were dealing with at that time, this would be just an idyllic Christian city, idyllic Christian government in every possible way according to what they were living with and their own experiences. They could not imagine having a city or a government or schools as God-honoring as the ones we have here in our city. So what Paul is saying to encourage the Ephesians to live for Christ in Ephesus, if it's true for them in that demonic and sin-filled city in the midst of what they're dealing with, and if it can work for those young Christians to not just survive, but to thrive in this horrific anti-God place, how much more so can those very words enable us to live in the city that we live in? For us to reach our neighbors and to love and be empowered to be able to reach out to our neighbors in the way that he's calling them to. So I'm excited for this book because to me it really is about living and loving like Jesus in the midst of a post-Christian world and pointing us to what that looks like here and today for us to do it. And so Paul's going to make a lot of incredible points and we're going to have a lot of time to go through it, but I want to hit just one today. And that is I want to jump to our passage today and that's out of chapter 5 verse 1. And to me this point kind of summarizes all of Paul's major points in this book of what he's calling of the people. And it's a pretty amazing point he makes. Starting in chapter 5 verse 1 he says this, Therefore be imitators of God as, or, as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. So this seemingly ridiculous command, he starts in chapter 5, it comes right in the middle of this book, and look at what it says, it says, Christians, be imitators of God. I don't know about how that sits with you, but for most people, that sounds like a pretty insane statement to say. Be just like God. I mean, is that even remotely possible for us to imitate God and be like God in the way that he lives and the way that he loves? And, but notice how it starts right there. It says, therefore, be imitators of God. And if you've spent any time studying the Bible, you know, if you ever see a therefore, it means you have to ask what on earth is the therefore, right? Which means you have to go back a few passages to see what's going on. And just prior to this, Paul is talking about the need for us to put off the old selves and put on the new. And I'm stoked when we get to cover that passage in chapter four a little later. But then he gets just to the previous verse. And he says to them, be kind to one another, be tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. 
Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. So, again, remember that chapters in the verses are not inspired by God. They're not divinely inspired to be there in Scripture. I mean, the, the, the verses were actually put there by a dude running, right, riding across horseback back in the 1500s because he had to put together a, a reference material on it and need an easy way to break it down. So there's a reason they might seem random sometimes. And the one here makes no sense of why they put the break here outside of convenience. So, Because Paul tells them here in this previous passage, he says, they need to be kind towards one another, tender-hearted, and forgiving. And then he's going to show the kind of forgiveness he's referring to. So it's not just, hey, forgive the person who bumped into you, forgive the guy who made a mean comment to you. He says, no, forgive others just like God forgave you through Christ Jesus. That's the kind of forgiveness I'm talking about. The dying on the cross kind of forgiveness for someone else while they're persecuting you. The kind of forgiveness for someone that hasn't repented, for someone that doesn't feel bad about what they've done, for someone that's not even aware that they need forgiveness, that's the kind of forgiveness he's talking about. Self-sacrificial dying for others, even if they don't recognize its value. So he calls them to imitate God and forgive by laying our lives down for others. And then he goes on, because he doesn't stop there. He says, and he goes on to say, as dearly loved children, because we are so loved by God, we should imitate him, and we should walk in love. And so what does walking in love look like? Well, you keep reading there, and it says that that is loving like Christ loved us when he died for us. So not only are we supposed to forgive like God and be like God, we're supposed to be like Jesus in the same way and love one another sacrificially, and not, again, not just, oh, I'm going to wash your feet. No, the example he uses isn't foot washing. The example of sacrificial love, he says, is when Jesus gave his life and died for you. A horrible, torturous death. That's what it means to walk in love. To sacrificially love one another and laying your lives down. He said, this is the model for us of what love looks like. Now, if you're reading that, I mean, maybe you just kind of want to throw your hands up in the air and say, well, what's the point then? I mean, I can't actually do that. I'll never be able to do that. There's no way I can actually imitate God and lay my life down for others. Maybe for my spouse, maybe for my kids, but definitely not that punk who cut me off in traffic the other day. Definitely not for that guy on Facebook who wrote, if you believe the way that I don't, or believe, don't believe the way I believe, then you're no longer my friend. Like, there's no way I'm going to be able to lay my life down for that person. And the cool thing is we're actually going to spend a number of months going through this book and seeing, because Paul doesn't just give this one statement in the midst of, on its own, he actually has five chapters or four chapters previous to this explaining how we are to love that way. And he's going to spend a great deal of amount of energy describing the fact that we don't do this in our own strength. It's not so we do by pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps, but we do it empowered by the Holy Spirit. We do it because God calls us his beloved children, that he has loved us to such a degree that then he expects by his Spirit we're to take the love that he has poured into us and be able to pour that into other people. That none of this is possible on our own. That would just be exhausting and impossible. But it doesn't take away the call and the mandate that we are called to be like Jesus. We are called to lay our lives down. We are called to forgive others like God does. We're called to lay down our lives for others and love them sacrificially. We are called to imitate Christ and to imitate God. I mean, just let that sit for a second. I don't know if you've actually considered that. That's actually what God is asking of the Ephesians, of people who just a few years ago were worshiping demons, involved in all sorts of horrific sexual sins. And now he's saying, you need to love just like Jesus loves. 
Maybe you heard me say the phrase, live and love like Jesus a few times so far. And I'm, there's only about a few thousand more to come this year. Because this is so central to the message of the New Testament. And how we live and how we love and how we forgive and how we show kindness and how we show gentleness and, and how, we show, how we use our speech, all these things, we are called to live and love like Jesus. If you've not heard, I want to repeat it again. We are called to actually live and love like Jesus. I mean, again, I want you to wrestle with that. That's no small statement of Scripture that's repeated again and again and again and again. That's what we are called to do. And it's not hyperbole. It's not exaggeration. It's not just love when it's convenient or love with a a self... It's it's, it's a self-sacrificial, daily dying to self kind of love. It means it won't always feel good. It means it will often be painful and hard. It means frequently it won't be reciprocated or understood or even seen when we love like that. And how do we do this? Do we do it just by digging down deep within our own souls, within our own effort and our own energy? And absolutely not. He's evidently, he's so clear in this book that we are in Christ and we love with his strength. In this, Paul's going to talk about how his Holy Spirit is going to show us how wide and how high and how deep is the love of Christ and how he fills us with the full measure of the love of Christ and that we don't do it on our own, but we do it with him. And we could spend weeks unpacking this one verse, but I just want to point out one very clear thing for me. We're actually going to come back to it again in a few months, but this command to sacrificially love one another, it's not just a suggestion. In the Greek, it's what's called an imperative, which means it's a strong command. It's something that's given that you don't have a choice. It's something that you don't, or that you, it's not about feelings like, I, I want to do this. It's not about how we feel or, or that day of what we think or warm fuzzies in our stomach towards someone. It's a command to do it. It's not asking us to, to feel like we want to forgive or to love that person or encouraging us to you know, forgive those who are most like us, but it's commanding us to sacrificially love one another. A love that requires sacrifice or requires likely a cost. Not one that's going to feel good in the moment, most likely. And again, this is especially hard for us today because in our society, it's love is whatever feels good in the moment, right? Love is how we feel today and it can be gone today or it can be there today and gone tomorrow. And people say, you know, follow your heart. You get married and then they get divorced. Why? Well, because I just don't feel love for them anymore. We have irreconcilable differences. We just don't feel love for each other. And so we break our, our vow of marriage. The warm fuzzies are gone. The, the feeling has come and the feeling is gone. It's become so obvious of this in the last couple of years of the polarization in America, where friendships are destroyed by just simple things or a post on Facebook, where, or, or they're destroyed over a different view on justice or a different view on theology or politics. And as Christians, we have shown that we're not really any better than the rest of the world. In fact, we might be worse than the rest of the world as far as just writing people off and saying we're done with people because of this. And we're actually, we, our, our true sides have been shown so clearly in this polarization that we are not very good at loving one another, specifically those who are different from ourselves with different views than ourselves. But Christ's command is to love one another. And the sacrificial love, again, is not of our own strength. It comes from the fact that we are his beloved, that we are dearly, dearly loved, and we love out of that strength. But this command is again and again, and I feel that One of the problems with this command to love one another as Christ has loved us is that maybe if you've grown up in the church, you've heard it too much. Maybe we've been so inundated with this of loving like Jesus that it's just become something that we've just lost our attunement to. It's just like white noise. Yeah, I love like Jesus. Yeah, I love like Jesus. And we forget what a radical statement this is. We forget that this is not just a suggestion. It is a command for us to realign our lives to be like his. 
And this is the whole book of Ephesians to me is all about this, this, this aspect of it. That I, I don't have to love someone in my heart to be able to forgive or to love someone. I'm not told that I have to want to love them. But I need to lean into his strength and choose to love, to, to set our hearts and minds to love in ways we cannot do on our own strength. To lean into the love of Christ for him to empower me to love in those ways. This isn't just what I'm capable of doing on my own, because by that measure, we will fail miserably, and there will be no different from us and the rest of the world. But we have to trust God to empower us to love with his strength and his spirit. And I just want to give a caveat before I go on this next story, but if you're in a situation of abuse... If you're in a situation of abuse with a spouse, a loved one, a friend, a boyfriend, family members, I'm not saying in any way, shape, or form that we are to continue in that and just keep you know, being a doormat in that situation loving again. Please get help, get out of that situation. Because this statement is pretty insane, what Christ is saying. That we are not to do it on our own, but by his empowering presence, by his strength. And I want to give one of the best stories I know of this, maybe you've heard this before, is the story of Corey Ten Boom. Corey Ted Boom is an amazing woman who died a number of years ago, but she uh, was caught from hiding Jews in her family home during the midst of the Holocaust. And her family was arrested, and her and her sister Betsy were taken to Ravensbrück concentration camp, um, where they were horrifically abused by the guards there. In a tragic story, I mean, despite all their ways, they, they sought to love their guards and do everything in the prison. Her sister Betsy died just three days before she was released from prison. And and, and set free. And, and Corey spent the rest of her life as a missionary telling people that the, of the love of Christ and how wonderful God is. And she wrote this incredible book called The Hiding Place that I can't recommend enough. Um, and I want to read a couple passages from, from this book, or it's actually a couple paragraphs. And so bear with me, but it's just this incredible part of the story. And she's describing just after being released of what happened to her. And she says, I was in this church in Munich that I saw him. He was a balding, heavy-set man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filling out the basement room where I had just spoken. It was 1947, and I had come from Holland to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. And that's when I saw him, working his way forward against the others. One moment, I saw the overcoat and the brown hat. The next, I saw a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. Now she's describing basically having a flashback to back when she was in the concentration camp as she sees this man. She says, it came back with a rush, the huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp that we were sent to. He said, you mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk. I was a guard there. She said, no, he didn't remember me. I had to do it. I knew that, she said. The message that God forgives has a prior condition that we forgive those who have injured us. But since that time, the guard went on, I have become a Christian. He says, I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well, Fraulein. His hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there, she says, I whose sins had every day to be forgiven, and I could not do it. Betsy had died in that place. Could this man erase her slow and terrible death simply by asking for forgiveness? She says, it could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out to me, 
But to me, it seemed as hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do. For I knew I had to do it. I knew that the message that God forgives has a prior condition that we forgive those who've injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your heaven and father forgive your trespasses. And I still, I stood there with coldness clutching my heart. And check this out, she says. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. I want to read that again. She says, forgiveness is not an emotion. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. No matter how, whole, hard the, how cold the heart is, we can still choose to forgive. And then she says, Jesus, help me, I prayed. One of the most amazing prayers I've ever heard. She says, I can lift my hand. I can do that much. But Jesus, you must supply the feeling. Do you hear that? She cries out, Jesus, help me. As his hand is held out. She says, I can lift my hand. That I can do. But I can't forgive on my own. I can lift my hand, I can be obedient, but Jesus, you have to supply the heart behind it because my heart is not towards this man. And she says, and so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one outstretched to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current that started in my shoulder and raced down my arm, spraying into our joined hands. And then his healing, then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. And for a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner, and I had never known before God's love so intensely as I did at that moment. What an incredible example. When love seems impossible, her answer is forgiveness is not an emotion. To love this person the way of Christ, she's like, forgiveness is not an act of the will that can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. She says, Jesus, help me. I can lift my hand, but you must supply the feeling. Obeying Christ's call to love one of the sacrificially is not easy. It's not just what we wake up ready to do and eager to do on most days. Especially when it's not reciprocated, when it's not seen, when it's not recognized. And now praise God that most of us will never be in a place like Corey Ten Boom where we asked in a moment to make a decision to forgive the person that tortured and killed our sister. Right? That's, hopefully none of us were in that place. Or most of us will likely never be in a place where we're asked to forgive all the sins of the world like Jesus and die for him. But we do have daily situations where we are being asked to love others sacrificially. Sometimes hourly. Oftentimes maybe it doesn't seem as big because frequently it's our spouse because we didn't pick up the socks off the floor. We left the toilet lit up. We recently got one of those cool ones that automatically puts the toilet lid down. That's a lifesaver, right? That's just awesome. Just goes down on its own automatically. I highly recommend the purchase. Um, but whatever the things are, we have these situations all day long that cause us to get annoyed and, and, and have nerves that rise up against one another. And Corey's story is pretty incredible. Tim Keller describes stories like this as being like spiritual nosebleeds, right? They're just so distant and far off, it's hard to even relate to. But yet every day we're facing these situations with spouses and friends and people at work or with one in our family that's most common is who's going to pretend not to listen to the kids the longest when they're crying, right? Or when they're annoyed and hitting one another and we're each in each of different ones rooms and both of us are trying to like outlast the other one. Who's going to get annoyed first and choose to love the other person by going and seeing what they're fighting about and wrestling about right now, right? 
You know, in driving away as, uh, from work on Thursday, I was praying through this passage. I'm like, Lord, what example can I give of sacrificial love when it's just hard and it's not recognized? And the Lord gave me an opportunity right then and there. Um, I was leaving this parking lot, driving up towards uh, 180th. And as I did, I looked back, there was a car way in the distance, but driving clearly fast, so I got up and started driving. And I'm not an aggressive driver anymore, but I was driving. And then as I moving towards the light, I saw this car right on my tail, slamming on the horn. I looked back in the mirror, and it's this middle-aged woman with both fingers flipping me off and cursing at me, just screaming at me with vitriol and anger. And I realized they were clearly were speeding up all the way to make a point and right on my, my tail. And so then I took a ride on 180th, you know, the area just out here. And I took a right to go up the hill, and it was right behind me, honking and honking and honking. And then they're behind me. I could just see they're still flipping me off in both hands, so that's dangerous. Um, lots of anger. And, and, and they're, just, they're just, just so angry at me. And so I drive on, and then it goes to two lanes, and they go to pass me. And as they do, they look over, and they're just anger and, and vitriol in their foot face. They cut me off intentionally, like almost smack into me. I slam my brakes, and we keep going. And at that point, I'm like, wow, something's messed up. And I'm like, in my heart, I'm like challenged at that moment. I'm like, Lord, show me how to love, show me how to love, show me how to love, right? I don't want to get angry. Clearly, this person had a bad day. And I was doing okay, honestly. And then we kept going up the street. If you know 180th, we went up down. And I went to t- and then we come close to 35th. And they were going straight. Lots of traffic, you know that road. And it's a long line of cars. And there's a long turn lane on the side. And I need to go left. And I knew this would put me past them. And so I was kind of self-righteous. Like, okay, Lord, show me how to love them as I pass. Show me how to, I was trying to do okay. And then right as I went to pass them, because they were going straight, they swerved into my lane to try to hit me. And they, and, and like right into my lane. And so I had to slam on my brakes, slurve into the opposite lane. And then they swerve right back into their lane again. I mean, I don't know what is going on with this person, but they almost hit me. They were driving a really expensive car too. I don't know what their deal was that day. And I remember just screaming as I slam on the brakes, almost hit them, went into the other lane and came back again. And at that point I had lost my spiritual nature. Um, and, uh, I screamed out. I was, I don't know what I said. I'm sure it was all perfect and PG, but, um, and I, 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 I just had these fantasies coming against them, like of what I would love to see happen to this wonderful lady in this car. And it lasted a couple seconds as I was going up to the turn lane and turning. And as it did, I just felt the Lord just so clearly speak to me, James, you're called to sacrificially love. I was like, oh, Lord, even her. Okay. No joke. And as I, I remember making that turn, I'm just like, Lord, my heart was just racing, adrenaline going through it, just anger. I'm just like, Lord, I, this, she'll never even know it. Like, I'm never going to see this person again. I just felt the Lord say, love her. And so I just, in my heart, I was like, Lord, bless this woman, Father. Like, show me how to love her. And I just, I prayed for the entire rest of the way home, like another five or six minutes. And I just, as I'm going there, I just, my heart just coming down and just say, Lord, show me how to love, even when it's not reciprocated, even when it's not understood or even unseen. And that's not to show a story. I mean, that story doesn't show how great James is, because I was an idiot. Um, not as big of an idiot as them, or idiot as them. Um, well, maybe I still got something in my heart that's still on there. That, even talking about the little adrenaline that rises up as I thought we were in an accident. Um, but it's not kind of a wow look at me. It's just, this is what Christ is calling of us. It's a regular thing. And the extreme situation, it's fine to talk about, but on the daily basis. With our spouses, with our kids, with our friends, with our neighbors, with our workmates, we are called to sacrificially love. And so the title of this series is called Living and Loving Like Jesus in a Post-Christian World because, again, as we continue through Ephesians, we're going to come back to this over and over and over again that we are not called to a life of ease. We are called to sacrificially love one another through the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. And right now, most of the post-Christian world has heard about Jesus here in America, in our area. Many of them grew up in the church, and they've walked away from it. 
And so fancy preaching isn't going to get them back to Christ. Nice sound systems won't do it. Facebook advertising won't do it. The only thing that's going to draw people back to Christ in this area is the same thing that Paul is talking to the Ephesians about reaching out to their demonically involved neighbors involved with so much other stuff. And that is they must live out the reality of what Christ has done in their life into the world to actually, practically, sacrificially live and love like Jesus. That's what we are called to do as a body. To actually, to practically, to sacrificially live and love like Jesus. That is our calling. And yes, in the big things, but even more so in the small ones. So I invite the worship team back up right now. And I want us just to listen to the Holy Spirit and ask Him to speak to us. Because I know this can apply to any circumstances. But where is the Holy Spirit challenging you right now? Where is your heart moving in aggressiveness towards someone? Or where is there a pain that has happened to you that you can't let go of? Where are the relationships in your life that are rotten or something that that just gets on your nerves where you're intentionally avoiding others? And maybe it's disagreements over politics or theology or something else. And, And that's just amazing to me because, again, in Ephesus, the Jews and the Gentiles hated each other. They hated each other. Do you realize that Jews used to believe at that time that Gentiles literally were fuel for the fires of hell? That's why they believe God created them. The Jewish people in the church grew up believing that Gentiles were created by God simply as fuel for the fires of hell. Could you imagine receiving this letter as a Gentile brother and reading it and Paul saying, you need to love that Jewish brother in your church the way Christ loved you, when you know they don't even value your humanity. They think you exist simply as kindling for for hell. And yet we can't even sit next to someone who disagrees with a political view of ours. Or someone that has a different theological view sometimes. Paul is calling us to love like Jesus sacrificially. So let's ask the Holy Spirit right now to empower us to grow and actually and practically living in love like Jesus. So Father, we just come to you right now. I don't know where people are at, but I know all of us have a wrestle with this one. This is an easy one. I mean, I could prophetically say that all of us struggle with this, because we do. And very likely, it's not even someone out there, because it's easy sometimes easier for us to deal with people out there than it is for people that are family or even church family. It's likely even within this room that there are people, or even people watching online, there's people in the room they're sitting with at this moment that there is deep division with. So Holy Spirit, I just pray right now, may you empower us, work in our hearts, soften our hearts, to say, Jesus, I want to accept your call to live in love like you. I want to imitate you in loving others the way that you have loved us, knowing that sometimes it's hard and it hurts and it's not reciprocated. And maybe we pray sometimes, just like Corey Tenbo, Jesus, help me. All I can do is lift my hand. You have to supply the feeling. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.